Good morning. So my name is Spencer. I'm one of the pastors here. So we made a shift last week in the book of Exodus uh, where we left the Ten Commandments and entered into what most people think of as the law. This is the teachings and the commandments of God of how we're called to live and love and honor and worship our God and live in harmony with one another. So for the rest of Exodus uh, into Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, you're going to see these, these commands that are helping the people understand how to worship God and how to live in harmony with one another. Last week, Chet kind of introduced the law as a whole, that he kind of gave us Calvin's framework for how to view it. Uh, that some law is civil that deals with kind of the societal uh, structuring of Israel as a nation, that some of it is ceremonial that deals with uh, some of the, the, the priesthood and the sacrificial system, and then some of it is moral. These are morals that God has always wanted his people to uh, follow. And then with that framework, we get to approach the rest of the law coming out of the Ten Commandments, ending into Exodus 21. And then we get to the first two verses of Exodus 21, which says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he shall go out free for nothing. So that is our first entrance into the law. When you hear that, you might go, wait, what? That, I haven't encountered that in the scriptures before. God sets them free from slavery in Egypt, gives them the Ten Commandments, and the very first thing that shows up is slavery. Isn't slavery bad? Isn't God good? When you read this, is it 2023 or 1823? There's this feeling in us as we approach the text here. And Exodus 21 has a lot to say about slavery. And it is passages like these that skeptics have taken and latched on to to attempt to delegitimize Christian faith. There's one uh, atheist uh, thinker who has a podcast. His name is Sam Harris. And Sam Harris once said, The entire civilized world now agrees that slavery is an abomination. What moral instruction do we get from the God of Abraham on this subject? Consult the Bible. And you will discover that the creator of the universe clearly expects us to keep slaves. And that's kind of an argument that you will hear is that, no, your Bible justifies slavery. And a lot of Christians will just kind of respond saying, uh-uh, no, like, I, I disagree. That's not true. But if you believe that, then what do you do with Exodus 21? What do you do with the parts of the Bible that speak about slavery from the Old Testament into the New Testament. That is what we're going to be doing today. Uh, we said that we'd be approaching the back end of Exodus differently than we did the front. We went verse by verse all the way up to this point. Now we're uh, approaching the last part of Exodus topically, and we're going to look at the topic of slavery starting in Exodus 21 and through the rest of the Bible. And God willing, when we are done, I'm going to show you how the Bible dismantles any attempt to uphold slavery. And then ultimately how uh, God brings about individual Christian change in our hearts on issues like this that ultimately uh, snowballs into societal change away from a system of servitude that has dominated humanity for thousands of years. So that's a big task. Let me pray and we'll walk through this together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us be present this morning, that we would listen 
that we would not be quick to make judgments on the text, but we would sit in this and think through it, and we would see what your ultimate desire is concerning slavery. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so back to verse 1 and 2. It says, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for nothing. Now, we run into a problem immediately when we read this text, and it has to do with the word slave. There are words in the Bible that we're not familiar with, that we may not be familiar with, like cistern or threshing floor. And if you don't know those terms, you go and you look them up, you learn what that is, and then we come back to the text and we try to understand it. But no one in the room is unfamiliar with the word slave. In fact, I would argue that everyone in the room has a preloaded understanding of what slave means and what slavery is. That when we hear the word slave, we think of the horrible practices of American slavery. We think of African men and women who were stolen and put in chains and put on ships where 1.8 million black men and women died on the way to Europe, on the way to America. We think of the horrors of them beyond the seller's block and going into a brutal system. That's what we think of. I would argue, whether consciously or unconsciously, that's how we approach the text because we're so familiar with this word and this concept as a part of our nation's history. So when we read... When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and the seventh he shall go free for nothing. What we need to do is to strip the context that we know for that word and put it aside and try to understand this word and its context. And that's what we're going to look at first, its context in the Old Testament. So, slavery was a widespread practice at the time that Exodus was written. It was all over the ancient Near East. We, there, there are all types of cultures that was very much part of the fabric of their economy. The slavery and servitude class built many empires. We saw this early on in the book of Exodus. We saw in the book of Exodus how the Hebrews were enslaved, how they were forced into labor. We saw the brutality of that, that, that Pharaoh at, a, at, the, at, a, at a whim could just decide, I'm going to kill all the firstborn males amongst my slaves. We saw a taskmaster beating a Hebrew. We saw that they could not leave. We saw the brutality that is a picture of slavery in the ancient Near East. That, one, that of one of conquering enemies, making them subject to you and building your empire with their labor. Now, we saw how God violently rescued them out of Egypt. Now they're in the wilderness. They're receiving the law before they enter into the promised land. And when they enter into the promised land, they're going to run into situations where people fall on hard times, where they lose everything. And there was no social safety net in the ancient Near East. If you lost everything, if you had no money, you could not buy food and you starved. And if you could beg to get enough, you might make it, but you most likely would die. There was no social safety net. So... A lot of people would sell themselves into slavery because that's better than death. At least you're not starving to death. That was a widespread practice at the time as well. Now, God takes that practice, modifies it for the people of God into a system that we would most likely understand as indentured servitude. Which if you can remember American history classes, indentured servitude 
was there are a lot of Europeans that, that could not afford the ship ride over to America to start a new life, so they would sell themselves into indentured servitude. They'd get to the States, they'd work as an indentured servant to pay off the debt for a few years, and they would be free. And that's more of what we see with the system that God has modified for the people of God in the book of Exodus 21 and onward. We see this again in Leviticus 25, verses 39 and 41. It says, if your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. That's the seventh year that we saw in Exodus 21. You work six years and then you're set free on the seventh. Then he shall go out for you from you, he and his children with you, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. Now notice the qualifications that is put on that. He's not going to be like a slave. Treat him like a hired worker. Take care of him or her. And when he gets back on his feet and he has worked for six years, release him. And not just empty-handed, he will retain the inheritance that God has given to the people. He will go back to the land of his forefathers. He will retain that inheritance and not go out empty. So God takes the system that was common in economies across the ancient Near East, and he modifies it basically to a system of indentured servitude that is more worker-employee style relationships. But they're working with that word Slave, and that is the word that, they get, that they're using to show someone who is working and not getting paid for their work. Then when you go back to Exodus 21, you see some other qualifications that are put on this system. Exodus 21 verse 16 says, Whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him, he shall be put to death. So this has to be something that someone volunteers into. You cannot force someone to do this. You cannot steal them into slavery. And if you're caught selling or you're caught with someone who is a stolen person forced into slavery, you will die. You will get the death penalty. So that if the American South lived under the Mosaic law, there would not be a lot of people left. That's just the reality of how God treats people who are forced into slavery. You sell or you buy, you die. That's the law. Then, there's other qualifications. We're not going to go through them all because we don't have the time. They cannot be killed. Verse 20, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. You're not going to mistreat. You're not going to kill. So the qualifications, once they uh, had worked six years, if they did not like the prospects of being free, that they could permanently enter into uh, servitude. We see that in Exodus 21, verse 6. And then there are other laws in Exodus 21 related to slavery that were so far removed from the context that are hard to understand, but the gist of the majority of them is to help them see that this is different than the ancient Near East. This is different than the surrounding nations. They're meant to protect the people within the system itself. And that's how God's people are to treat one another. Now, it's a little bit different. You get Leviticus 25. There's, there's, if there's a sojourner or a foreigner who is in your land who decides to sell themselves into slavery, they need to understand up front that it's permanent. They don't get that seventh year redemption at the year of Jubilee. So if there are foreigners in the land, they sell themselves into slavery, it will be permanent. So that's a bit of a system 
that was very different than the surrounding nations, very different than how we understand American slavery that was built off of stolen people and brutality. God was doing something different, and it stood out among nations as different. But if we're honest, as Christians living in the new covenant of Christ, as Christians, we look at all of this still and go, yeah, but why? Why take something that was common and reduce that down? Why modify that? Why not just end it altogether? Why, 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 what's this, what, what's this about someone being, going into permanent servitude? Like, I don't, there's part of us that looks at this and says, yeah, they're treated like hired hands. Yeah, they're, they're different, but what's, what, why didn't God just end it all together? This is certainly better than what we have in our heads when we hear the word slave, but this still feels like it's not enough. We, what we as Christians need to understand when we read about slavery and the law is that God was doing something that was uniquely different, that was countercultural to the cultures of that time. And that thread of doing something different than the nations, different that was countercultural, that thread is going to be pulled into the New Testament. Because when Jesus comes along, he's going to flip the law on its head. This is what Chet was getting at last week, that Christ comes and fulfills the law, and that means that there are certain civil aspects to servitude that are fulfilled in Christ that no longer remain. So Christ fulfills the law, so we don't, we're not under the Mosaic law anymore, but there's even something more unique that's happening in Jesus' approach to the Mosaic law, the law of Moses. That if you look closer, you'll begin to see that God goes a step further with the law to show that the law did not capture God's ultimate desires for his people. The law was not the finished product. It did not capture the heart of God and how he expects his people to live in community with one another. And that happens in a few different teachings. Uh, multiple times Jesus quotes the law by saying, you've heard that it was said, but I say to you. You've heard that it was said, which is ironic because that's Jesus who is God who gave them the law. You've heard that it was said, but I say to you. And he's doing something different. He's flipping the law on its head. I'll give you one clear example of how he does this. He does it with divorce in Matthew 19. In Matthew 19, he's teaching on divorce. He says, as they're asking him questions about divorce, he says, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They're quoting Deuteronomy 24 as they're asking Jesus about marriage. And it says, he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. He says this, because of the hardness of the people of God's hearts, they weren't ready for this. Because of the hardness of their heart, they weren't ready for the ultimate desire of marriage. And because of that, they were not able to live under the law as it relates to marriage and live out the desires of what God had always wanted for marriage. So he says, but I tell you now, here's the real desire. You stay married. That's the desire for marriage. This happens also 
In Matthew 5, verses 38 to 39, it says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. That's out of our main chapter today, which is Exodus 21. He says, you've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. He says, but I say to you, and then gives them what God ultimately wants for his people. Jesus is helping them see that the Israelites were too hard-hearted. They were too wicked to receive God's ultimate desires for his people and how they should live and treat one another. So Jesus is doing that in his teachings, pressing on this. Then he fulfills the law perfectly with his life. And then he goes to the cross where he has his, his blood is poured out to make atonement for the people of God for all of our sins. And then he rises from the grave, defeating death and making a way for his new covenant people to be born again, to have a new life in Christ. Jesus ascends into heaven and the Holy Spirit descends upon the church and empowers the church to finally start to live out the ultimate desires for what God has for his people in this new covenant faith. So what I'm going to argue is that God has a more subtle, but I say to you throughout the New Testament, a more subtle, but I say to you that is going to change the way his people approach slavery and servitude. But in order for me to do that from the New Testament, we got to go back to redefining slavery again. Because when you get to the New Testament, there's a Roman system that is different than Israel's. There's a Roman system that we need to understand. That we, we can't just read that and think of the, what we commonly know as slavery. we got to understand the Roman system itself. So, in the New Testament, which was written in Greek, there's one word for slave. It's doulos. Now, doulos, and if you have an ESV Bible around you, there's this blue Bibles around you. That's the English Standard Version. The way they translate doulos, and it tells you this in a lot of the prefaces of the ESV. The way they translate doulos is one of three different ways. One of them is bondservant. If you've read that in the New Testament, that's the Greek word doulos, bondservant. We're going to get to that in a moment. But that was a branch of the servitude system of Rome that was more like indentured servitude. You'd work for six years, then you'd be free. Work for seven years, then you'd be free. It's also translated as slave, which is a different part of the Roman system. That's permanent slavery. And then every now and then, it's translated servant. And what uh, the ESV is doing with uh, the word when it translates it servant is it's, it's telling us that it doesn't give us, a, it, the, the, the text has enough context where it can be translated either bondservant or slave. So that's the ESV just punting and saying, you need to figure out from the context whether this is bondservant or whether this is slave. So that means we also need to understand the difference between a bondservant and a permanent slave in Roman society. So up to a third of the Roman Empire was in this servitude class. Think about that. Up to a third of the entire Roman Empire was in the servitude class. And many of them were what were called bond servants. Let's deal with that word first. Bond servitude was very much like indentured servant, servitude. That if you fell on hard times, just like in the ancient Near East, there was no social safety net. There was no one coming to bail you out. If you didn't have the money, you couldn't buy food. If you couldn't buy food, you died. 
So a lot of people that would get into debt and not be able to pay it off would enter voluntarily into bond servitude. You would become a bond servant and your debt would be paid and you'd be able to work that off over a seven-year period. And there's a lot of people that were free that, that would do this, that would sell themselves into this. I mean, there were, a lot of bond servants were doctors. A lot of bond servants were teachers. They just fell in hard times. And they had uh, to sell themselves into bond servitude in order to survive because there was no social safety net. So it's similar to how Israel did it, but very different because there were no protections built in. If you sold yourself into bond servitude to a free Roman, you were property. There, there, there's, you, are, you are property. They can do with you what they want. So if you're going to enter voluntarily into bond servitude, you better choose someone who is nice because they absolutely could do whatever they wanted to you. So that's one aspect of servitude in the Roman Empire is bond servitude. The second is a class of permanent slaves. And that's when the New Testament is going to translate that slave. Slaves in Roman society were permanent. Unless they could A, buy their freedom, so make enough money on the side to be able to purchase their freedom, or B, unless their master freed them. But you did not volunteer for permanent servitude in the Roman Empire. Much of the Roman uh, slaves were people that were stolen and sold into it. So that's... That was a big, I mean, the, the stolen uh, uh, man-stealing and, and, and enforcing people into slavery uh, to make money was very much a part of the Roman Empire. This was also uh, enemies who Rome conquered and said, we're not going to kill you, but we're going to make you slaves. And permanent servitude was harsh. There were a lot of people that... Uh, Ended up with really brutal jobs, working in the mines until they died. It was a brutal system. Some criminals were uh, forced into this as well. And they were treated horribly. Permanent slaves were treated horribly. It was very common to sexually exploit slaves in Rome. Very common practice. Now, this happened also a little bit in American slavery. We see that even with Thomas Jefferson. But sexual exploitation in American slavery was still stigmatized because of racism with white slave owners. It was not stigmatized at all in the Roman Empire. You could rape your slave, no one, it was commonplace. You did whatever you want with them. They're your property, they belong to you. And that was a brutal part of Roman slavery, was the sexual exploitation that was widespread and not stigmatized at all. You could physically beat, even kill your slave in the Roman Empire, it was not uncommon. So you did not want to be a slave in the Roman Empire at all. I've seen some Christians attempt to try to clean up a little bit. Historically, you just can't. The Roman system was brutal. So that's the context for the Greek word doulos. As it shows up in the New Testament that Jesus steps into. So what does God expect of his new covenant people? There are skeptics that will still go. But your New Testament still justifies it. Your New Testament says things like Ephesians 6, 5, bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. And the other passage is just like that one, Colossians 3, 1 Peter 2. And they'll say, see, your Bible justifies slavery. It justifies servitude. But I argue, if you're willing to do the work, you're going to see that God is doing something countercultural and different 
with his new covenant people. For the rest of our time in the New Testament, I want to show you what God is doing. So, be very upfront about this. The New Testament does not make its aim to overthrow governments or overthrow oppressive systems. That is not the aim of the New Testament. On a whole bunch of different subjects, whether it's slavery or poverty or whatever, the, the, the New Testament does not have the approach of overthrowing governments and oppressive systems. That's not what the New Testament is doing. That's not what the gospel is doing. The gospel brings about radical individual change that calls people into a new covenant of faith where they look differently, where the Holy Spirit changes them and molds them into the image of Christ in a way that looks different from the world. And that individual change ultimately snowballs into societal change. And we see that historically. Because when Christianity started to spread across the Roman Empire, when it became the dominant religion in the Roman Empire, you saw servitude start to decrease. So why? Why is that the case? Where is the New Testament argument for that? Where is the but I say to you that ultimately dismantles the idea that you can own people as property? So much so that it changed the Roman Empire. Let's start with how the scripture first uh, dismantles the purchase of new slaves, then we'll move to uh, those who already have slaves. We're going to look at the seedbed forward abolition for the freedom of people from the system that shows up in the New Testament. We're going to start with how the New Testament dismantles the purchase of new slaves. 1 Timothy 1.10. In 1 Timothy 1.10, Paul, is like he does in a lot of his letters, he's giving a list of sins that he's ultimately going to address with the gospel. But in 1 Timothy 1.10, he says, The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers. And then he goes on to say liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So that word, enslavers, that is the term used for man-stealing. That's forcing people into slavery. That follows the Old Testament law. In Exodus 21, 16, that would give people the death penalty for being caught with stolen people. So we see that that part of the law isn't civil, it's actually moral. And that from the Old Testament into the New, forcing people into slavery is not the heart of God. So enslavers, no, that's sin. Forcing people into slave trading throughout the scriptures is either, out, is either explicitly condemned or it's very much looked down upon. And I don't have time to get to the book of Joshua because if you may be familiar with the Old Testament. But even the book of Joshua, when they don't obey the Lord and bringing his judgment upon the Canaanites, and they make slaves instead, there's judgment for that. God never, not once, commands his people, not once does he command his people to ever force anyone into slavery. The Bible roundly condemns this. The Old Testament roundly condemns forcing anyone into oppression. I mean, over and over again, the prophets are, are, are attacking oppression in the land. Then you get to the New Testament, and Jesus starts to teach something even different. He starts to teach things like love your enemies, which when you follow the thread on that, realizing that, no, we're not going to force people into slavery. We're not going to conquer enemies and force them into this system. Love your enemies. So when you look at how the Bible approaches 
how people are made permanent slaves through force, you start to realize there's no biblical justification for that at all. And without new slaves, you don't have a system of servitude at all. That you're not able to make new slaves. So, without forcing anyone into permanent slavery, you don't have a system. And that's what First Timothy and the flow from the Old Testament and the New Testament is planting the seed for. Don't force people into this. Which begs the question, but what if they volunteer? What if an individual Christian decides, what if a person decides they want to they sell themselves into this? You can't take 1 Timothy 1.10, you can't take some of the arguments against forcing people into slavery and apply that to someone who would sell themselves into bond servitude. That, you can't do that. The Bible does not go there. So, that begs the question, is some form of indentured servitude okay? Is some form of bond servitude still okay? Is it okay for a Christian to look at his brother who is in need and say, yes, I'm going to help you. I'm going to pay your debt off. Come and work for me for six years, and then I will release you. What does the Bible have to say about that? Well, then you got to look at some other passages to see the right Christian ethical approach to helping those who are in need. When the early church began and began to explode in the book of Acts, in Acts 2, verses 44 through 45, it says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. This is some of the first acts of Christians. They had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That you see very early on, they had all things in common. That they helped each other. That they obeyed the teachings of Jesus that showed up over and over and over again. And Jesus in Luke 12, 33, amongst other places, says, sell your possessions and give to the needy. These aren't conditional statements. You can't read into this that there's some type of back-end service that's going to be required. 1 John 3, 17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? How do you see from the New Testament this radical change that you're called to love and help and serve others that somewhere in that embedded is some type of exchange to where they become property for a period of time? And more to the point, the New Testament explicitly forbids a Christian from selling themselves into servitude. First Corinthians 7, 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Do not become bondservants of men. That if they were to sell themselves into bondservitude, they would be sinning against God, which means that if a brother came to you to do that and you allowed them to enter into bond servitude. You were facilitating sin and rebelling against the will of God. So, the New Testament gives us the prescription to those who are in need over and over again. You help them. You don't make them devalue themselves as image bearers to become property as a condition of help. So, if there are no new slaves, can't force people into this, And it's a sin 
to actually have them sell themselves into this, then eventually you don't have a system of servitude. Then eventually, as we see in the Roman Empire, servitude starts to decrease. But let's dive a little deeper here. Let's live in a hypothetical. If you're a new Christian in 55 AD, and you're convinced of the arguments that I just made from the Scriptures, you're convinced that I can't make new slaves of anyone, what do you do with your current slaves? Or more practically, what could happen in this day and age, you take the gospel to a culture that still has servitude built into their economic fabric. What do you do when you take the gospel there and they say, you've convinced me. I'm not going to join in enslavers. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to cause anyone else to sin. What do you say to that brother who's a Christian master, especially when they go, but yeah, the New Testament, Ephesians 6, 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters of fear and trembling. I'm not going to make new ones, but what? Can he not just, can, where's the justification that I need to release the ones I currently have? And that's the second thing I want to look at. Not just the purchase of new slaves. What do you do with current slaves? So, if they were forced into slavery in the first place, that's an easier thing to address. It's easier to point to 1 Timothy 1.10 and Exodus 21 that shows you're participating in a system that's morally repugnant and evil. That you need to repent and release someone who was forced into slavery. That's an easier argument to make. So it's, all right, you've convinced me. The permanent slaves that I have, I'm releasing them. They're now free. But what about the current bond servants that I have? I paid off their debts. I got three years left to serve out their sentence. Just let them serve it out. I paid a lot of money for this. So what do you say to the current master? that has bond servants. I'd start by going to Ephesians 6, 9. So after Paul makes the argument about bond servants obeying, he gets to verse 9, and he says this, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So I would say to them and say, okay, if they want to continue to serve out their sentence, fine. You cannot threaten them anymore. Zero force, zero threat. To which they might reply, well, if I can't threaten them, if I can't use force, what if they decide to leave? What if they decide they don't want to be a bondservant anymore? Threat and force is what keeps the system in place in the first place. And I'd say, you can't threaten them anymore. But if I can't threaten them, you understand, they're going to walk free. And I would say, exactly. Exactly. That is the ultimate desire of God anyways, is that he wants them to be free. But I have fields that need to be worked. I have things that need to be done. The only way I'm going to keep them here is if I pay them. Exactly. Now you're tracking. Yes, you're going to pay them what they're worth. You are no longer going to force them into this. And in fact, not only am I going to tell you that you can't use the threat of force to keep them in place, 
I'm going to tell them that they should seek their freedom from you, which is what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7, starting in verse 20, it says, Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity, which is a convoluted way of saying, do it. If you can free yourself, do it. Four, verse 22, he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when, he, when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So I would show that Christian master the ultimate desire is that we would only have one master, and his name is Jesus. That we only have one master that we serve. So yeah, you cannot use force, and I am going to tell them to go free. And if they want to go free, you let them go. Otherwise, start paying them. And then finally, I would take them to what I think is the death nail that begins the snowball effect that ultimately unravels the system, and that is the book of Philemon. The book of Philemon is the, is the shortest letter that Paul wrote. Paul is writing to a Christian uh, slave owner, a Christian bond servant, or bond servant owner, a master named Philemon. And the whole subject of the letter of Philemon is that he is telling him and convincing him, you need to free your runaway slave, Onesimus. So Onesimus is with Paul, and he's writing back to Philemon, and this is what he argues with Philemon. In verse 8, he says, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, I'm bold enough in Christ to tell you what you should do. Verse 9, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus. Have love's sake. For the sake of love, I'm appealing to you. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in imprisonment. And then he goes on to argue in verses 15 and 16. For this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant as a beloved brother. I'm writing to you and appealing to you out of love that you should take Onesimus back no longer as a bondservant, no longer as property. Take him back as a brother. He is arguing, free him. And then it goes on to say, and if you have more verses, he basically just says, and you owe me anyways because I led you to Christ, which is like the ultimate flex. <laughs> so you're going to do this. Can you imagine the New Testament churches that were getting these letters that were circulating around and someone brings the letter of Philemon and brings it to this church and they read the scripture aloud. Can you imagine the Holy Spirit softening the heart of Christian masters realizing that's it. That's what I'm supposed to do. Can you imagine God working in their hearts to bring about radical individual change that ultimately helped them see what the heart of God was all along, that we are not supposed to make people property. You don't make image bearers property. Brothers and sisters, 
there are certain subject matters in the scriptures that take a lot of legwork to understand. And slavery is one of them. It is one of the most complicated subjects in the Bible. And with a few passages ripped from the overall text of the scripture, skeptics may make you believe that your faith condones making people property. Don't let them. There were certainly a lot of Christians in this very city in the 1800s that made bad biblical arguments to continue the evils of American slavery, but they were wrong. They were wrong. But also, don't miss for a moment that the argument against slavery, it did not originate from skeptics. It didn't originate from atheists. In fact, I'd argue if there is no God, and we're all fighting this out together, that's kind of the way you'd want to do it, to gain power. No, the argument against slavery never came from anywhere else other than the Scriptures. The fight for abolition came directly from Christians who were looking at the Scriptures and realizing what it truly said, that the seeds for abolition were planted in it. I love what the historian Thomas Kidd says. He says, Christian thought was never uniformly anti-slavery, of course, until long after legalized slavery vanished in the 1800s. And he's dead on because there were Christians in this very city that were not uniformly anti-slavery in the slightest. But the sources of anti-slavery thought were always powerfully Christian. And you can't study the history of the abolition movement from the UK into America and not see that. The threat of the scriptures was always heading towards abolition. For there's only one person that is supposed to be our master, and his name is Jesus. 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how we should regard us as servants of Christ, stewards of the mystery of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we get the whole counsel of your word, that we get to see your heart, that that teaches us and molds us into a people that sees one another as image bearers, that sees one another with love. I'm thankful for the work that took place to bring about the societal change that was planted in individual hearts 2,000 years ago. In Jesus' name, amen. The band's going to come up. And as we worship, I want you to see how good it is that we have a master in Christ and that we get to be his servants. He is very good and he's worthy of our worship. The one we serve says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. That is the master we get to serve and that is the God we get to worship. So y'all stand and sing with me.